I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Reswan Pavri, a corporate M&A and securities partner at Wilson Sonsini in Palo Alto. Rez, thank you so much for joining us today. David, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast, a little bit about you, your background, how you came to practice law, and how you came to return to California after starting out in New York, a little bit about your practice, which incorporates both securities law and M&A, what you're seeing among your client base in Silicon Valley now, and a little bit about how you decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself. So myself, gosh, I'm not that interesting or that complicated, but I was born in India, grew up there until I was about five years old. And then my family moved out to Northern California, blue collar family for sure. And so from Northern California, I ended up going to college at UCLA, spent four years at UCLA. I worked my way through college, paid my way through. And then I went to Columbia for law school. And I started my career out there at Cravath, spent four years in New York and London working for Cravath, doing both securities and M&A, which is sort of how my practice developed in both of those areas. And then when my wife and I started having a family, we decided it was time to move home. And we came out here to Northern California. And when we did, the first thing that was told to me was, look, if you're going to go out there, Wilson Sonsini is the place to be. And so 2004, we packed up Wilson Sonsini. We started one month after leaving Crevasse and been here almost all of my career since. Tell us about maintaining both of those practices you know, throughout the course of your career, oftentimes people will gravitate to one or the other, but you do both securities work and m It's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie to you because I think that even at a firm like Cravath, where you're trained through a system that has you go through both practice areas, eventually you specialize and you become one or the other typically. For me, part of it was having that experience and grown up in a background where as an associate, I was doing both kinds of work and coming out to Wilson Sonsini, which historically has been very much a client-focused firm. And I think practice in Silicon Valley has been a very client-focused practice rather than a transactionally focused practice. And so when I came out to Wilson Sonsini, in my early years, I was getting the opportunity to do everything. I continued to do M&A. I continued to do capital markets. And I added to my practice by adding venture and early stage work as well. So it actually expanded even further after I got to Wilson Sonsini. And what I realized was I was perhaps the last of a dying breed, which is Wilson Sonsini historically. And I think many of the firms out in Northern California trained their lawyers to do everything at different degrees of excellence. But their lawyers were trained to do everything because they followed their clients. Over time, even the West Coast firms have become much more specialized. Partners and associates at the West Coast firms have now started to specialize where you'll be doing almost only venture, or you'll do only capital markets, or you'll do only M&A or only public company and governance. That's just not me. And that's not how I develop. And so over time, my clients have demanded, frankly, that I stay involved in all of the pieces. I'm not allowed by my clients to just move on and hand them off to somebody else. And so that's how it's stayed as part of my practice doing everything, because that's what the clients expect from me. How has the mix of work you do changed over time? And how is your practice different from the practice of someone, say, 10 years younger, who may really have to focus on one of those areas in part because of the evolution of the client base of the valve? Yeah, no, it's a great question. For me, 
the purposeful direction that I took my career in was about 10 years ago when I decided I was going to spend more time in capital markets and focusing more on the securities side work. Because M&A is, generally speaking, all-consuming. If you're an M&A lawyer these days, that's all you do. There are not a whole lot of lawyers who are like me who do M&A with a significant part of their practice, but not all of their practice. And so the purposeful decision for me was moving and doing more capital markets because capital markets largely on the West Coast is not an all or nothing practice. It's becoming that way where more people are specialists. But David, look at what's happening in the market today. If you're an all or nothing capital markets practice, you're doing nothing (laughs) for the last year and a half. That's not necessarily a great place to be. And you allow your skills, I believe, to atrophy in many other areas. So I chose to push more into capital markets because I believe that that was the time when you could get to know more about a company than in any other circumstance. Venture financings are very much one and done. M&A transactions oftentimes can be one and done unless you're working with a serial acquirer where you're repetitively working with that client. A capital markets transaction, particularly an IPO, is six months of intense learning about the company. Sitting in a room oftentimes, even in the Zoom world, or sitting in Zoom calls where you are constantly digging in and learning everything about the company from the ground up. Learning not just about the legal side, but the business side, how the company works, and then helping to tell that story to the rest of the world. So capital markets allowed me to, to get much deeper with my companies and much closer with them and be more helpful to them when they were talking about their M&A or their corporate governance decisions, because I understood not only the legal overlay to all these things, but I understood what was the business rationale? What are the leaders inside the company think? What does the board of directors think? How do they think so that I can help navigate and guide what kinds of decisions get made in the M&A process, which are myriad, but every company has a different profile in terms of how it structures its M&A transactions because it involves its upside opportunity, the risk, how it wants to mitigate that risk. And so having a sense of what the business goals are while also understanding the legal overlay is why I spend a lot of my time also doing M&A with my companies after I've taken them public. The way you think about it, it sounds, is that the capital markets work, especially the IPO, gives you almost a very deep introduction to a company, its leadership, how it thinks about its business, probably how it thinks about its growth in the next three to five to seven years. And you don't want to almost throw that knowledge away or not be able to build on that knowledge by advising on M&A going forward. That's exactly right. That's precisely how I think about it, David. And it's interesting. It's not just me that thinks about it that way. It's actually more the client's even when I have M&A partners that I will bring into transactions, folks who do nothing but M&A and some of the very best in the market at it, clients will still ask me to be actively involved because while there may be some areas of the negotiations that benefit from having a specialist, what many of the clients want is someone who also has the business overlay and understands what the important legal issues are that come up in M&A. Because look, that was what I was trained in. That's what I did for the first 10 years of my career very intensively was a lot of M&A. And it continued even beyond that first 10 years. I would say probably about 30 to 50% of my time beyond those first 10 years has been M&A still. So bringing the business sense and the M&A sense together is M&A legal sense together is what the clients value. I'll say one other thing that I think is overlooked by a lot of lawyers today is all of these areas are interrelated. Venture, M&A, capital markets, corporate governance, there are interrelations across all of them. And if you don't understand, for example, how venture financings work and what the documents say and what the typical is in a venture financing world, it's very hard to do a good job in understanding and, and constructing a good capital markets IPO. 
At the same time, if you don't understand how those venture financing documents work, then it's going to be very hard to do buy-side or sell-side M&A involving a company of that nature. So all of these things fit together. And we, as a society and as a profession, have broken them up to such a degree that I don't think it's necessarily great for client outcomes when you don't have people who can easily move between those disciplines. And some of this, though, is related to your client base in Silicon Valley, where you have companies that have gone public in the relatively recent past. Whereas if you were representing, you know, one of the companies that had gone public in the 80s or 90s, the knowledge of that company's <laughs> venture work would be irrelevant. And, and even the securities work might well have split from that company's M&A process. I think that's right. You're absolutely accurate about that. For most of my practice, it is those companies growing up and migrating between different stages of their life cycle. So most of the companies that I work with are still in their first 10 years post-IPO. So that's accurate. The one thing I'll say is having a strong securities background still helps even 10, 20, 30 years after a company's IPO, because if the company is going to be doing M&A transactions, oftentimes it's with securities, or even if it's cash transaction, it's going to have a securities law overlay about how you execute that transaction. And given how much you enjoy getting to know companies in the IPO process, have you ever considered going in-house or put another way, why have you decided to continue practicing at a firm rather than moving over to the business side? Oh, probably a myriad things. Short attention span might be one of them, but no, I joke. One of the things that I love is getting to see many different types of challenges over time and dealing with a lot of different types of personalities, whether within companies as well as within the ecosystem generally helping those companies. So I like the opportunity to learn about many different businesses, assist them in how they're thinking about their future and their plans, and at the same time, help them navigate different opportunities and risks and challenges that present themselves. I think going in-house can still be fascinating and very interesting to a lot of people. For me, I prefer the variety, whereas other people prefer the depth with one company. And as you look at your mid-level and senior associates who may be wrestling with that decision about whether to stay at Wilson or to go to a client, how do you advise them and how do you assess which personalities are going to do better in one environment or the other? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that I tend to find with folks is that most of the people that come into law firms actually might be very well served being in-house because many of them are deeply passionate about what they do and like the sense of ownership that comes from being day-to-day with a management team and being in-house and responsible for what goes on in all parts of a business and not merely the legal function. So I think many of them will do well in-house. That being said, I think for those of us that are curious about a wide range of companies and business models, I think staying at a firm is the better choice. And what are you seeing now in your client base in terms of issues that are particularly pressing? Well, these days, we're seeing clients that are struggling with just the financial realities of the market today. And I would say that that's number one. In technology, every few years, the market seems to swing and it moves between growth at all costs at one extreme and then immediate profitability at the other extreme. And so at any given time, there is a continuum in between those. And so what I would say right now 
most of our clients are dealing with that you must be profitable today or have a very, very clear and defined path to profitability that investors believe in the near term. And when I say near term, I mean the next fiscal year in most cases. So that's what clients are dealing with today. The challenge, I think, for a lot of our clients is that for most of their life cycle, they're told that growth is the most important thing, whether it be growth at all costs or in more modest times, growth with reasonable eyes towards profitability in the not too distant future, meaning say two to three years out for a company that is getting ready to go public. When you're regularly moving between those cycles and imperatives, depending on where the capital markets are and where investor sentiment is, that can be challenging for a company to deal with. A year, year and a half ago, people were hiring like Madden had trouble getting enough employees to do to attack the opportunities in front of them. All of a sudden, the markets shifted very quickly. And so layoffs have followed. And finding the path through this, I think, is the biggest business challenge for companies today. And it presents legal challenges as well. Because how do you think through the legal challenges that come when you may have to do massive layoffs? How do you think through executive layoffs, regular employee layoffs? How do you also think about what you use your capital for in these times? Your stock price is probably much lower than it's been in the last five years. Do you use some of your capital for stock repurchases or do you need to hold your capital dear because you don't know when access to capital is going to be available again at good terms? And so these are tough decisions that both have business and legal overlays that our clients are dealing with. And what are you seeing in terms of corporate governance and ESG in this more challenging environment? It's a great question. And what I'm seeing is that corporate governance is still a high priority. But the corporate governance is the focus of corporate governance in the boardrooms that I'm working with is shifting more towards how do we maximize value for shareholders, which as a matter of pure corporate law, it's always supposed to be that. But in more frothy times, some other factors come into the mix as well. So right now we're hearing even more discussions about how do we maximize, how do we maximize profitability? How do we maximize our runway? How do we ensure that we are properly allocating capital, whether that's reducing headcount, whether that's doing stock repurchases, how are we thinking about M&A? So all of those really meat and potatoes issues have come front and center again in these tougher financial times. ESG is still an important force, and I'm not taking away from that, but I will say there is less discussion of ESG today than there was in 2020 and 2021 in the boardrooms that I sit in because there are more fundamental survival and profitability questions that are taking the forefront. Obviously, a huge number of Silicon Valley businesses are enterprise software businesses. That's a segment in which you've seen a massive change in the last 10 years because private equity has become a much more important player in that space. How has that changed the advice you give these companies and how they think about their prospects, even as private companies, perhaps? It definitely has had a big change over the last 10 to 15 years. Private equity's influence continues to grow. Many of the companies that we work with are taken off the table by private equity before they ever get to an IPO. In the old days, and when I say old days, that's 10, 15, 20 years ago, software companies, enterprise software companies in particular, that were not ready for an IPO would perhaps look at strategic buyers, but there really weren't financial buyers that were all that interested in technology companies. 
And one of the reasons is the subscription model, I think, has made the risk of buying enterprise software companies so much lower for a private equity fund. They can rely on a certain amount of recurring revenue year after year after year, and that can be used for debt payments or anything else. And beyond that, they know that there is almost always some fat within technology companies. I don't mean that to say that as a pejorative in any way to the clients we work with, but the nature is you're building for the future. You are developing more on the basis you believe there's more opportunity and more growth in the future. For private equity, there's a lot of opportunity to perhaps reduce some of those costs and achieve financial gains in other ways. So the change in the market has made a lot of the companies that we work with also recognize that there are a lot of avenues. They are not limited anymore to either an IPO or cozying up to a strategic partner and finding a buyer that way. They now know that many of them will be taken out before they ever reach the public markets by private equity. And I would actually say in any process that we're seeing these days, private equity buyers are much more likely to be the outreaches that our clients do than strategic buyers. I would say both are on the list, but for every three private equity buyers, perhaps one strategic will be included in the list. And there are a couple of things driving that. I think one on the M&A side is that it has generally been the view that it's easier for private equity to get a deal through without regulatory risk or challenge than a strategic buyer. That's starting to change with the new enforcement regime with the DOJ and the FTC. But generally speaking, I would say that's still by and large been true. So if you can remove deal risk and private equity tends to move much more quickly than strategic buyers do. So speed and execution risk, those are two of the core topics when you're dealing with a sale process. When private equity can deliver those better than strategics in many cases, that's a much more appealing option for a lot of our clients. Have the much more challenging debt markets in the last six months to year changed that calculus at all or changed the kind of businesses that can realistically consider a sale to a private equity sponsor as an exit? I think it's changed to a limited degree the kinds of businesses because the people that are writing the debt paper are going to want a lot of confidence and security that that company will be able to support the debt that is layered on. But I would say most of the private equity funds are, number one, still able to get debt without too much difficulty. The interest rates are higher, but they're still able to secure the debt, number one. Number two, for many of the, I would say for several private equity funds, the bigger players especially, they are in a position to write a full equity check if necessary. So that's still enticing to a seller, getting a full equity check as a backstop. So even if debt is not available, they will be able to close that deal with the private equity buyer. And then when time permits and when opportunity permits, the the private equity buyer can backstop and fill that with debt, fill some of their equity with debt. Anything else you're seeing among your client base at the moment? I would say those are a couple of the major themes. Another thing that I think a lot of our clients are grappling with is the SEC, for example, is being much more active in its rulemaking. And so dealing with a tough business environment, a tough financial and economic environment, and also a changing, rapidly changing regulatory landscape is something that our clients are managing as well. You know, it's an interesting dynamic. Clients are still talking about a potential IPO in late 2023, 24, 25, still planning forward. But the regulatory regime that they're having to deal with in public 
gets more challenging. And it makes you wonder whether the attractiveness of going public is going to start to diminish over time as we get an SEC that is not just more enforcement and disclosure oriented, but frankly, is a little less friendly than it was, say, a decade ago. Well, and this is as being public has become significantly more challenging in the last 20 years, in part, of course, because private equity is a massively bigger force in the economy generally than it would have been in 2000. That's right. You have more activism today. You have more regulation today. You have more disclosure requirements today. You have easier footfalls today. And so the barriers and the challenges to going public and being a public company keep increasing. And so my fear is that over time, that that's going to continue to diminish the attractiveness of it as an opportunity, which, by the way, is one of the things that has made private equity such an enticing alternative for a lot of companies. They're able to cash out for a lot of their stockholders, largely hold their management and employee base together because in a private equity buyout, they're almost certain to retain most of management and most of the employee base rather than in a strategic where there may be a lot of layoffs that come with that. Overall, it's a great liquidity option for a lot of companies that don't want to deal with the public markets. And then finally, how do you decompress from work? Uh, That really is spending time with my family. I'm not one who necessarily believes in a full separation between my work and the rest of my life. So work will infiltrate almost all aspects, whether it's vacation, evenings, etc. But I do try to spend my time with my family. and That is where almost all of my decompression time, if you will, comes from, is spending time with my wife and kids. And it's the thing I enjoy most of all. Rez, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.